1 Samuel 17, 32. David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of these Philistines. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, you're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a young man and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, go, and the Lord will be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I'm not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistines cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of, armies of, the, God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those who gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he flung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, without a sword in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from its sheath, and he killed him. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. Then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and to the gates of Ekron. Their dead were strewn all over Sharim, road to Gath and Ekron. When the Israelites returned from chasing the Philistines, they plundered their camp. Well, good morning and a really warm welcome to Reality Church London. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Bijan, the pastor for our church. And we're in a series looking at the life of David in 1st and 2nd Samuel. Today we come to one of the most famous stories in the whole Bible, David and Goliath. And let's pray and ask for God's help as we now turn our attention to this really beautiful, challenging, and important story. Let's pray. Our God, thank you for this time that we have together to look at this story, a story that some of us know really well. Others, maybe this is our first time encountering it. But wherever we are, we pray this morning that you would give us insight to understand what's here 
And more than that, that you would give us the power of your spirit to be transformed by what's here, that we would experience the love and the power and the grace of Jesus, even as we look at his word. We pray all this now for his glory and for our good, as we say together, amen, amen. When you're afraid, when you go through situations that intimidate you, where do you find courage to face your fear? I'm not asking if you get afraid, I'm asking when. Because sooner or later in all of our lives, we face things that fill us with tremendous fear, things that feel overwhelming and intimidating. Where do you get in those moments courage to face what's ahead of you? And just to be clear, I'm not talking about courage to face your fear of heights by going skydiving or mountain climbing, fun as that might be. But I'm talking about the courage that you need to face the much more subtle yet deep fears that come into all of our lives. Where do you get the courage that you need to have that much needed but very hard conversation, speaking truth even though it's not going to be well received to a family member or colleague at work? Some of you have deep social anxiety. Even coming to church or hanging out with friends feels terrifying. Where do you get the courage to continue pressing into community even though everything within you wants to not? When the doctor says, I'm sorry, but there's nothing we can do, where do you get the courage to keep trusting God and to have hope? When you're passed over for a promotion at work that you absolutely and totally deserved, where do you get the courage to show up the next day and keep working without bitterness and without resentment? to keep doing a good job. You see, throughout our lives, these are the kinds of situations that come crashing into our world and they can intimidate us. They can fill us with fear. And the question that every human being has to answer is where do you get the courage that you need to face your fear? First Samuel 17, this really famous story about David and Goliath is about courage, but not necessarily courage in the way you may think. This story, like I said earlier, is one of the most well-known in the whole Bible. And the danger with well-known stories is that you take them for granted. You think you know it. But actually, as we look at this story, we're going to see truth that's so relevant, so applicable to our lives, but maybe in ways that we weren't expecting. This story is about courage, but not the kind of courage that you might think. So let's take a look at it. The first thing that I want to do for today's sermon is I want to give you a summary of the story. The story is so long that we didn't even read the whole thing. So in case this is your first time hearing the story, I just want to summarize it real briefly. Then the second thing that I want to do is actually talk to you about how to read the Bible. And then the third thing is consider what everything we've said means for us. So a summary of the story, thinking about how you read the Bible, and then finally what all of this means for you. So first, here's the summary of this great story, 1 Samuel 17. Israel, the nation, is at war with the Philistines. At this time in history, they were often fighting in little battles here and there, trying to take territory from each other. So on this particular day, Israel and its army is on one side of the Valley of Elah, and the Philistines are on the other side of the Valley of Elah. But what you notice in verse 4, again, not part of the passage that Felicia read, is that the way that this particular battle is unfolding is not the way you and I are used to warfare. When we think of warfare, we think of armies fighting each other. 
But in this instance, the way the war was being conducted was through champions. It was through representatives. What that means is each army would pick their best soldier, their strongest soldier. And that soldier would go out and would wait for the other army to send its champion. And each champion would then go and meet and fight each other. And whichever champion was victorious, well, that nation was victorious. The champion was fighting as his people. And so we're told in verse 4 that the Philistine champion is a man named Goliath. And Goliath, just the mere mention of that name, I mean, that's not a scrawny kid, right? You don't call a scrawny kid Goliath. And this was a hulking man. The text tells us that Goliath is between eight and nine feet tall. The text tells us again earlier in 1 Samuel that his armor weighs 125 pounds. I mean, that's a lot of armor. His spear was 25 pounds. His spear was heavier than my children. I mean, this is a strong, intimidating, experienced soldier. And every day, Goliath comes out and he stands in the valley and he mocks and he belittles Israel and says, send me someone to fight. And he's just day after day intimidating with his sheer presence. Now, that's the way Goliath is presented. And by the way, Goliath gives an example of how most people think about getting courage in our culture today. Because the way this story presents Goliath, he's given to us as a picture of someone who's completely self-confident. And that's how a lot of people think about courage today. Everything that you need to face your trials and your troubles and your challenges, you have it inside of you. So what you need to do is increase your strengths, increase your assets, rely on having the best stuff. I mean, Goliath's armor was the latest tech. It was the most expensive armor for sale. And what Goliath is doing is saying, look at my experience, look at my strength, look at my stuff. Nothing will be too hard for me. And so Goliath is an example of someone who gets courage through self-confidence and self-assertion. And you say, well, foolish Goliath, I would never do that. If you think that you're not prone to the Goliath way of getting courage, you probably don't really know your own heart. Because, for example, when bad news comes into your life, if you start planning and strategizing instead of praying, if your first instinct is to plan and to say, how can I figure this out? You're tapping into Goliath courage. If when you get difficult news or are presented with a problem, your first instinct is to fire up your laptop and see what Google has to say rather than opening your Bible, it's Goliath courage. And we're all prone to believe the lie that we have within us everything we need to face our fear, to face the challenges that are in front of us. This is the Goliath way of getting courage. Now, Goliath is there, he's taunting Israel, and no Israelite soldier would dare go out and fight Goliath. They're all terrified. Well, as the days go by, David, who at this time was so young, he wasn't even able to be a soldier in the army. He was a shepherd boy. And David's father sends David to the front lines of the battle with a basket of food. And David's dad says, hey, take this food, go check on your brothers who are fighting in the army and see how they're doing. So David gets to the Valley of Elah, he goes to the front lines, and he sees all of Israel cowering and terrified in the presence of Goliath. And 
the soldiers are saying, we have no one who can match him. We have no one courageous enough to go out and fight against Goliath. Now, David says, well, I'll do it. He's defying, he's mocking our God. I'll fight him. And David's brothers begin to mock him and despise him and say, There's, you're a boy, you can't fight against this great soldier. But eventually David says, I'll do it. So Saul, the king, meets David. And Saul's like, yeah, okay, no, seriously, you can't go out there, little guy. And David says, no. And let me read to you verses 34 through 37. David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it and I struck it and I rescued the sheep from its mouth. And when it turned on me, I seized it by its hair. I struck it and I killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he's defied the armies of the living God. Verse 37, the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. David has complete confidence, not in himself, but in God. And this is where biblical courage starts to come from. David is aware that to God belongs the ability to give victory and strength. So David says, I'll fight him because it's God who fights for me. And eventually Saul says, fine, go, the Lord be with you. Now, what's David showing us? If the Goliath way of getting courage is self-confidence, the David way of getting courage is what you could call self-forgetfulness. You see, David is intimidated by Goliath, no doubt. How could he not be? But when he faces Goliath, he's not actually thinking about himself. He's thinking about the glory of God. He's thinking about the welfare of his people. And he says, someone's got to rise to the challenge. He's actually not thinking that much about himself. He's not trying to be brave. He's just moving towards the situation that demands it. And real courage, the courage that changes history, the courage that movies are made of, are not people who are completely self-confident. They're people who are self-forgetful. They're people who are so committed to a cause that their comfort comes second. This is the kind of courage that we need. Let me give you a silly example, but it makes the point. I am terrified of getting jabs or having my blood drawn. If you want to make fun of me, do it. I don't care. I can handle it. But I can't. I just, it scares me. So if I know that I'm going to the doctor to get a jab or getting blood drawn, I get tense. Uh, when I actually show up at the doctor, I tell them I've got to lie down. I'm that guy. I fainted. I get cold sweats. It's a bad thing. I've tried to talk myself up. I've tried to say, hey, it's no big deal. Everybody does it. Little kids can handle it. Doesn't matter. I'm afraid. But you know what's interesting? Two years ago, about two years ago, we had our first child, a baby girl. And like many kids, she has to get immunizations and vaccines. So when I take her to the doctor, I, who am normally terrified of needles, have her sitting on my lap, I'm holding her hands, and I'm watching her as they stick the needle into her thigh. And she starts crying, and she's scared, and I'm fine, it's okay, you're gonna be okay, the pain will pass. I'm acting with courage. <laughs> Why? Not because I'm trying to be brave, because I'm not thinking about myself. My love for my daughter is much stronger than my fear of needles. And in that moment, I act courageously because of love for someone or something else. 
You see, self-forgetfulness is the real key to courage. And David actually in this story tells us what he's thinking about. You see, he's able to move towards Goliath, not with self-confidence, but with self-forgetfulness because something else has captured his heart. And the thing that has become so beautiful to him, the thing that's become so captivating to him is in verse 47. David says to Goliath, all those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. The battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you into our hands. Friends, hear me. What has captivated David's heart? Well, he wouldn't have used this word but it's the gospel. You see, in verse 47, we have the motto of the whole Bible. The Lord saves. You see, the way you won wars, the way you won battles in David's time was by having a sword or a spear. And everyone thought the person who's best with sword or spear, that's the person who's gonna have the victory. And David says, no, God saves not because you're the best or not because you've earned it or because you're the strongest, but because of his grace. He can save in the most unlikely of ways and through the most extraordinary means. It's the Lord who saves, not the strongest, not the most accomplished, not the best at wielding a weapon. In other words, David is tapping into the gospel that God saves because of his own kindness and grace. And so that's what's captivated his heart. He wants to show the world God can give the victory to even this tiny shepherd boy who's being mocked by this ginormous giant. And so he steps out into the Valley of Elah. And when you actually get to the incident of their battle, there's not much. David swings his slingshot, boom, one rock goes and Goliath falls down. Now that's the story. That's the account of this great battle, this great incident. Two different ways of getting courage. But here's now what I wanna ask you. How do you read the Bible? When you sit down to read the Bible, and maybe you've read the Bible for many years, maybe you're brand new, maybe this is your first time in church, maybe you're not a Christian. But here's the question. How would you or how do you read the Bible? Most people, by default, read the Bible looking for examples to follow. You open the Bible and you think, how can I follow the examples that are in this story? And what you're doing is you're looking at this story and trying to insert yourself into the narrative. Where do I fit? And you know what? Let me even say, not that I like to be very critical of other churches or preachers, but I'll tell you, I've heard countless sermons on 1 Samuel 17 that do the same thing. The preacher says, let's look at this story and find examples for how we're meant to live. And so you come to 1 Samuel 17, and if you're looking for examples to follow, you know what you do? You say, David is my example. He trusted in God. He prayed. He had faith. And Goliath came crashing into his world, but he trusted in God. He swung his slingshot, and he had the victory. And so I, as I face my Goliaths, I'm going to go out in faith. I'm going to trust God. I'm going to be prayed up and I'm going to slay any giant that comes my way. My boss, no problem. Difficult situation, I've got this. But you know what? When you read the Bible looking for examples to follow, you know what you're really doing? The Goliath way of getting courage. You're trying to build up your own sense of self-confidence and you're making it all about you. And you know what happens? Just what happened to Goliath. You're crushed. We'll always be crushed if we come to the Bible looking for examples to follow. 
because we can't live up. Even David in his own life, yes, he had a great victory in 1 Samuel 17. But later in David's life, he's going to have tons of failures of courage. He's going to make mistakes. He's going to drop the ball. He's going to be a coward. David is not a perfect example. But if we come to these stories and we look for people like David to be our example, we say, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go out like David and fight my Goliaths. You're going to be crushed. Because you're going to, in your life, go through situations and experiences that are too much for you. You're going to face Goliaths that are actually too big for you. And if you go out in your own strength, yeah, after a sermon like this, you might say, rah, rah, I can do it. And that will last for a few hours. And then you'll be overwhelmed. You know, our church is not filled with only young people, but there's a lot of young people here. And when you're young, you think that you're invincible. And suffering feels far away. And I don't want to be too morbid, but hear me. There is real suffering that's going to come into all of your life. For many of you, your greatest disappointments are still ahead of you. Some of you are going to hear the doctor say, it's cancer, and we're not sure that we can beat it. Others of you are going to watch people that you love die long before they're supposed to. Some of you have and some of you will experience the profound pain that comes from desperately wanting to have children and not being able to. Some of you are going to have to fight against and say no to strong sexual urges because you want to honor God's word as best as you can. Some of you are going to have to handle and experience deep depression and find a way to make it in the world, even though it feels like nobody understands and nobody can relate. I mean, there is deep, profound Goliaths that are out there. And if you think, if you say to yourself, it's all on me, I can do it, I can be like David and slay my giants, you're going to get crushed. If you look at the Bible as just examples to follow, it's going to overwhelm you. Because you don't have what it takes to face everything life's going to throw at you. So is there a better way? There is. What if we learn to read the Bible, not looking for examples to follow, but what if instead we look to the Bible for a savior in whom we can rest? That's the way that Christians are supposed to read the Bible. Because the Bible itself tells us that the point of every hero the point of every figure, the point of every theme in Scripture is Jesus. Every nook and cranny of the Bible is pointing us to him. He's the hero of the story, not you. So let's, again, read 1 Samuel 17, not looking for an example to follow. Let's look at it looking for a Savior to rest in. And what do we see? Jesus is the true and better David. The one who was sent by his father to check on the welfare of his brothers. But his brothers mocked him. His brothers demeaned him. And yet, in an act of love, Jesus became our champion. He went out to face the great Goliath, sin and death and the devil. He went out to represent us, to be our champion. The Hebrew word champion literally means the man in between. And Jesus went out in between you and your great enemy. Sin and death and the devil. And the way Jesus fought, much like David, it was pretty surprising. 
You have Goliath, nine feet tall, with a huge spear and tons of armor. And you have David waddling out. He's wearing a shepherd's robe, and he's got a slingshot. And anyone looking, taking odds, would say, okay, money on Goliath. And yet, in a surprising victory, God gives David the victory that day. And you fast forward thousands of years, and what do you see? Jesus Christ, the champion, Jesus Christ, the real hero, wins not just by risking his life, but by giving it up, by going to the cross. And that did not look like victory. That looked like defeat. But what we're told is that on the cross, Jesus actually destroys the power of evil. He wins against sin, death, and the devil. He's our champion. And you know who you are in the story? Jesus is the true and better David. Jesus is the real hero. And do you know where you fit in, in the narrative? Let me read to you. This is the very end of the passage. Verses 51 to 52. It says, When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. Then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout, and they pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath. Verse 53, when the Israelites returned from chasing the Philistines, they plundered their camp. Do you know who you are in the story? You're the Israelites. You're the ones who were scared, cowering in the trenches until your champion and hero went to fight the battle that you never could. And in his victory is your victory. Because of his courage, you find courage. Previously, the Israelites were there in the trenches. They were terrified and they were scared and they thought, there's no way we could fight against Goliath. But then the hero, the champion, comes in a surprising way and wins. And all of a sudden, because of the courage of David, Israel says, let's go. And they have courage to face the enemy that previously filled them with fear. That's who you are in the story. In the courage of your champion is where you find courage. When you see the beauty of his sacrifice. When you see what he's done for you. So, let's take a few minutes now at the end and ask, what does this mean for us? What does it mean if we apply this story, not by looking for an example to follow, but a savior to rest in? Here's what we're going to see. When you look at the cross and you see the courage of Jesus Christ. When you look at the cross and you see Jesus acting as your champion, three things follow. First, when you see Jesus' courage on the cross, you know that death has been defeated. Death has been defeated. You see, death is the great Goliath that reigns over humankind. Death is this nine-foot foe that stands in front of all of us. And sooner or later, we're going to have to face it, unless you're in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus went toe-to-toe with death, and he won by dying. Let me read to you two verses from the book of Hebrews. Listen carefully to what the author says about the power of death and the victory of Jesus. By his death, Jesus might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is, the devil. And through death would free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. What the author of Hebrews is saying is that Jesus on the cross, when he died, defeated death. He took out the sting, the weapon of the greatest enemy that we've ever had. 
You've been freed from the thing that reigns over the world like a great shadow and threatens all of us. George Herbert, the old poet, used to say, death used to be an executioner, but the gospel has just made him a gardener. Death can only make you more beautiful as you're planted into the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What makes you afraid? What fills you with fear? If you remember in the center of your heart that death has actually been defeated, that in a thousand years you're going to be safe, not just safe, you're going to be in glory, that brings a tremendous kind of peace and poise into your life. The cross, the courage of Jesus shows us death has been defeated. Second, when you see the courage of Jesus on the cross, you also see that you are loved infinitely. You are loved infinitely. Imagine how you would have felt if you were standing there in the Valley of Elah that day and you saw David going out to fight Goliath on your behalf. You would say, this guy really loves us. I mean, he's a little nuts, but he really loves us. That's what Jesus did for you. But Jesus wasn't carrying a slingshot. He was carrying his cross. And Jesus didn't go at the risk of his life. He went at the cost of it. And hear me this morning, Jesus loves you, not just you as in an abstract glob of people called the church. He loves you as an individual. He knows what you're thinking about today. He knows the burdens that you're facing right now, and he loves you. Most of you spend most of your time trying to find love. Might be love from another person, might be a sense of acceptance in your industry, a sense of belonging in your vocation, might be with your family. We spend most of our time and most of our energy, even most of our sin, are just attempted shortcuts to try to find love. The cross of Jesus Christ means that you are loved infinitely. The strongest love that has ever been shared in the world is already yours if you're in Jesus Christ. If you knew that, you would live as a person who was loved. That would bring rest. Some of you are exhausted by ambition. Now, I'm all for ambition. It's good to make a difference with our life. But some of you are not working ambitiously to make a difference for others. You're trying to get a sense of identity for yourself. And you're exhausted. Do you know what the cross says? Sure, work hard, be ambitious, that's great. But work from love. Not for it. Because if you're working for love, if you're working for an identity of belonging, you'll be exhausted forever. But if you believe in the cross, if you look to the courage of Jesus, you're loved infinitely. Death defeated, you're loved infinitely. And third and last, the cross tells us that all things work together for good. One of the most misquoted and most famous verses in the Bible is Romans 8.28. Let me read this to you. The Apostle Paul says, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, the way to misunderstand that and to be a terrible friend to other people is they're going through suffering and you say, Oh, don't worry, this will be good. All things work together for good. It's going to be fine. The verse doesn't say all things that happen are good. It says all things work together for good. Sometimes things that happen are terrible. They're awful, they're evil, and they need to be defined as such. But what the verse is saying is that somehow in God's mysterious wisdom, all things will eventually work together for good. 
I don't understand how God's going to do that. I don't understand how God takes evil and pain and suffering and eventually works them together for good. But I know that he can. You say, how do you know? Because of the cross. If God in Jesus on the cross could turn that into good, then there's no situation in this world that he can't ultimately turn for his glory and for your good. And so what the cross tells us is that all things work together for good. Now friends, take that. Take that concoction. Death has been defeated. You are loved infinitely and everything eventually will work together for good. That's what the cross tells you. And if that gets into the center of your soul, do you know what happens? You become a person slowly but surely who has courage. You can face this world. You can say, I'm a coward, but Jesus is my champion. And so because he was victorious, because he won, I'm going to surge forward and face my little Goliaths, whatever they might be. And I'm going to rest in Jesus, and his courage is my courage. And slowly but surely, we become a more self-forgetful people, a people who know we're loved infinitely. Death, the great enemy, has been defeated, and eventually, somehow, in God's mysterious wisdom, it's all going to be okay. So we can have courage. We can be a courageous people in and for our city and for our world. Let's pray and ask God to help us be a people of true courage. Our God, thank you for our time together this morning, looking at 1 Samuel 17. And Lord, now as we turn our attention to this time of response and this time of worship, we ask and we pray that by the power of your spirit, you would be powerfully at work right now in this room and with those who are gathered via Zoom. Lord, we need courage, but not the Goliath way of courage. We need, we need the courage of Jesus, our champion. In his courage, we can find courage. And so right now, as we sing and as we respond, as we, as we encounter you, we pray for Jesus to be made real. We pray for Jesus to be magnified that we would see his love for us, that we would see his power over death, that we would, that we would trust you.